hope you're having a good weekend. Kind of stormy in the eastern part of the country. Anyway, we are all here gathered together. This is Bob Bro. Welcome to the Best Old Time Radio Podcast, the weekend edition. And this weekend, we are playing an old time radio grab bag. In fact, it's old time radio grab bag number 12. And it's a pretty good lineup. You're going to hear a, uh, an episode of Challenge of the Yukon. You're going to hear You Are There. You're going to hear a game show that you probably haven't heard before. And it's really going to make you laugh. It's entitled, Can You Top This? And then finally, we're going to play a really long-running drama entitled Dr. Christian. And I think you're going to enjoy the lineup. With the old-time radio grab bag, I just grab these shows because they don't fit the normal categories that we play during the week. And I really don't spend a lot of time listening to them, researching them. I just throw them out there in case you are a real old-time radio buff and you just want to hear whatever might have been on the air. And there's a lot of reasons why we like to listen to these. One, they may bring back memories. Two, they uh, kind of give you some historical perspective of what was going on during the time. And three, they're just a whole lot of fun. So why don't you get over in that big chair, get your feet up and relax, because I really think you're going to enjoy the shows that are being presented in this old-time radio grab bag, number 12. going to start things off in the frozen northwest with an episode of Challenge of the Yukon. This was first broadcast on May the 26th, 1950, and the name of the story is Wand Diamond. Now, as gunshots echo across the windswept, snow-covered reaches of the wild northwest, Quaker-puffed wheat and Quaker-puffed rice, the breakfast cereal shot from guns... Present the challenge of the Yukon. It's Yukon King, swiftest and strongest lead dog of the Northwest, blazing the trail for Sergeant Preston of the Northwest Mounted Police in his relentless pursuit of lawbreakers. On King, on New Huskies. Gold, gold discovered in the Yukon. A stampede to the Klondike in the wild race for riches. Back to the days of the gold rush. The adventures of Sergeant Preston and his wonder dog, Yukon King, as they meet the challenge of the Yukon. Jim Trainer, private detective was standing at the window of his office. San Francisco Harbor sparkled under the spring sun, and there were only shadows in Jim's eyes. His jaw was set. He shook his head. Ah, it's no use. I'll never make a go of it on my own. I'd better take that job the Pinkertons offered me. 
But just then, the door of the office opened and Liza Warren walked in. In one swift glance, Jim took in the bird of paradise on her hat, the blonde hair, a little too blonde, the red of her lips, the rings on her fingers. Yes? Are you Jim Trainer? That's right. What can I do for you? I need your help. Won't you sit down? Thank you. They, uh, they didn't tell me you were so handsome. I wasn't always. Battling Moran gave me the dent in my nose just last year. But I've had the scar on my chin for a long time. <laughs> in other words, flattery will get me no place. My fee is $500 and expenses. I'll pay you the $500 in advance. Very generous. Let's find out if I can help you first. I'm sure you can, Jim. Well? A diamond's been stolen from me, a large diamond, nearly 30 carats. I want you to get it back. Have you reported the theft to the police? No. Why not? Because they'd be useless in a case like this. Was the stone insured? No. That is, I had no insurance. Look, you haven't even told me your name. Why, I thought you'd recognize me. I'm Liza Warren. Oh. I've heard of you. Then you can understand why I don't want to go to the police. I'll put my cards on the table. That's the best way, isn't it? Yeah, it's the only way. I happen to know who has the diamond, and I believe you're the one man who can get it back. Who are you talking about? Who has it? Barney Crandall. But Barney Crandall's no friend of mine. Oh, I know that. I know he gave you the scar on your chin. You might just as well have thrown that fight, Jim. You didn't turn out to be a very good heavyweight after all. Water under the bridge. But you haven't forgotten what Barney and his men did to you. Go on. You haven't shown much of your hand so far. All right, there's no reason why I shouldn't. Barney has the diamond. He's disappeared. You're the one man in San Francisco who can find out where he's gone. You're the one man who has nerve enough to try and get it away from him. If you do... I'll get rid of it for you in Amsterdam, and we'll split the profits. Do you need any more cards than that? No. What's your answer? No. Why not? Whoever sent you here should have told you that I'm not a crook. How well does honesty pay, Jim? It isn't paying at all. Then why not show some sense? The diamond you're talking about was stolen from Carteret's. Of course. But it was Barney who staged that holdup. There'll be no danger for you and me. Can't you see that? No. Thanks. You'd uh, better go now. Really? Yes, really. You take me for a fool. I've given you a valuable tip. You're going to try and act on it yourself. You're going to try and cut me out. If your tip's worth anything, I'll give you a share of my commission. <laughs> That's good. All right, Jim. Play the game your own way. We'll see how far you get. You knew that I wouldn't accept your proposition when you made it. Why, Jim. You're not only handsome, you're smart. Why did you tip me off about Crandall? <laughs> Go ahead and find him, Jim. I wish you all the luck in the world. <laughs> After Liza had gone, Jim sat looking out the window until the sun had set and the last touch of orange and gold had faded from the sky. The Golden Gate was a black menace now, looming through the dusk. It was dangerous business, he thought. But there was only one answer to that. Uh, it's dangerous, maybe. Still, any business is better than no business at all. <laughs> if 
I win, I'll be on my way. If I lose, I won't have to worry about going anywhere. That night, Jim visited the Barbary Coast, the section of the city where he had grown up. And he talked with everyone who had known him as a boy, and later on as a fighter, policeman, stool pigeon, crook, bartender, fisherman, sailor. And by midnight, he had his information. A hint here, a wink there, a few words spoken from behind a sheltering hand. The following morning, he was closeted with the chief investigator of the Great Western Insurance Company. I have only one question. Yes? What sort of a reward are you offering for the return of the Carteret Diamond? Uh, $5,000 for any information leading to its recovery. $10,000 for the return of the stone itself. Thanks. Now, wait. If you have any information, it should be given to the police at once. I haven't anything that will help them now. I'm a licensed private detective. I want to work on the case myself. Any objections? Well, this robbery was the work of a well-organized gang. One man won't have much of a chance against them. That depends on the man, doesn't it? You should cooperate with the police. We'll be glad to pay you if... I'll uh... wait for that until I produce some results. Good day, Mr. German. Good day. That same day, Jim sailed for Skagway and the Yukon Territory. later, he was in Dawson. Dawson, at that time, was a capital of the world. Its cafes were crowded with fortune hunters from every country. It was inevitable that Jim should meet someone he knew. Rafferty's rat-like face peered up at him, his thin lips twisted into a nervous smile. Well, uh, what are you doing here, Jim? Uh, what are you doing here? The same thing everybody else is. I thought you'd gone into business for yourself. I thought you were a detective. Business was slow. I decided to make my first million the easy way. <laughs> yeah, this is better than robbing a bank. I bet there's a hundred millionaires in this joint right now. Oh, uh, Rafferty, have you run into any of the old crowd from the coast? Why? Why you ask that, Jim? I thought you were all through with them. Now, there are a few I want to steer clear of. <coughs> Barney Crandall, for instance. Yeah, yeah, I can understand that. He isn't in Dawson. How are you doing for money, Rafferty? Bad, Jim. Bad. Uh, here's 20. Hey, thanks. If uh, you should happen to see Crandall, pass the word along, huh? I'm living at the palace. Oh, sure, sure, Jim. Always glad to help out a friend, you know that. Sure, sure. Rafferty left the cafe shortly after he had talked with Jim. He went to the livery stable and hired a horse. He was no expert rider, but he urged his mount to its greatest speed down the banks of the Yukon toward 40 miles. The knocking on the door finally wakened Jim. He stirred sleepily and then... Yes? Rafferty. Oh. You're covered. So I see. The lamp was out in the hall. The two men who faced Jim had their hats pulled low over their eyes. He couldn't make out their faces, but neither of them was Rafferty. Get in some clothes fast. You're coming with us. Out the back way. Jim was in no position to resist. He went with the man out the rear door. And before he had a chance to size up the situation, he was slugged on the head. <laughs> that did it. Now we'll dump him in the river and hurry away from here. 
Sergeant Preston had been paddling all night. He was only 50 feet from the wharf at Dawson when King, who had been lying in the bow, rose to his feet and growled softly. It was too dark for the Molly to see anything on shore, and too dark for the men who held the unconscious form of Jim Trainer to see the canoe. They threw the detective into the water and hurried away. King heard the splash and leaped overboard. While the great dog swam toward shore, Sergeant Preston paddled his canoe in the same direction. A moment later, he could see King, and beside him, a man holding on to the dog's harness feebly. Sergeant reached out to grab the man's coat, but he sank beneath the surface of the water. All right, King, I'll get him, boy. We'll continue our adventure in just a moment. A bullseye for flavor. Yes, in every spoonful of the ready-to-serve breakfast cereal shot from guns, you enjoy swell, nut-like flavor. A bullseye for crispness. Yes, there's tender, melt-in-your-mouth crispness in those king-size kernels of Quaker puffed wheat and Quaker puffed rice. A bullseye for nourishment. Yes, Quaker puffed wheat and Quaker puffed rice give you added food values of restored natural grain amounts of vitamin B1 Nielsen and Iron. You're always on the target when you reach for that famous big red and blue package. The non-tipping, non-spilling package with the smiling Quaker man on the front. Pour out a bowlful of crisp, delicious Quaker puffed wheat or Quaker puffed rice. Add milk or cream. Top with your favorite fruit. Man, oh man, these giant flavor-rich premium grains are exploded up to eight times normal size to make them crisp and tender. They're shot from guns to make them bigger and better tasting. Shot through and through with nut-like flavor, too. Buy both delicious kinds. For variety, one morning eat Quaker puffed wheat. And the next morning eat Quaker puffed rice. The famous cereals shot from guns. Now to continue. When the man disappeared beneath the surface of the water, the sergeant pulled off his boots. Then he threw the canoe's line to King. Hey, boy, hang on to this. The sergeant dove deep, slightly downstream from the point where he had last seen the man. Then he swam beneath the surface of the water, searching with his hands until his lungs were bursting. Just as he thought he must have to take a fresh breath, he touched cloth. He took a tight hold and kicked for the surface. The air poured into his lungs, giving him fresh strength, and he struck out for the narrow strip of beach between the two docks. King followed, pulling the canoe. The sergeant touched bottom and pulled his unconscious burden up on the beach. Immediately, he began to apply artificial respiration. King dragged the canoe up on the beach and crouched silently, watching his master. In ten minutes, the man began to breathe. The sergeant pulled the blanket out of the canoe and wrapped him in it. A few minutes later, the man opened his eyes. What is it? Nothing. It's wonderful to breathe, to be alive. Thanks for saving me. Here, here's some brandy. Take a swallow. Thanks. Feel better? Except for my head. Wonderful. What's the matter with your head? That's where they hit me before they threw me in. So it wasn't your own idea to take a swim with your clothes on? No. I'm Sergeant Preston, Northwest Mounted Police. Who was it hit you? I don't know, Sergeant. There were two of them, but I never got a good look at their faces. Well, I'll take you to headquarters and you can rest a little and then tell me the whole story. No, there is no story. 
My name's Trainer, Jim Trainer, private detective from San Francisco. I'm working on a case. You better let us help you. I can't do that. The men who tried to murder you had some connection with the case? I guess so. It's my job to arrest them. I'm not making any charges against anybody. What are you afraid of? My commission, that's all. Won't help me any if the Northwest Mounted Police gets my man. We're not interested in your commission. If there are criminals up here, we want to know about it. I've got to get it back myself. It? Now I've got a lead. I want to follow it up. Just help me back to the palace. That's all I ask, Sergeant. Think you can walk? Oh, sure. Here we go, then. <laughs> the sergeant realized that Jim was stubborn, that he could hope for no more direct information about the attempt on the young detective's life. But he had no intention of letting the matter drop. And early the next morning, he called Constable Downey into his office. A special assignment. Good. What is it? Case of attempted murder. Murder? Where? Here in Dawson. If it hadn't been for King, it would have been more than... The sergeant sketched the events of the previous night and told the constable all he had been able to learn from Jim. about it, which isn't much, I must admit. But if they've tried to kill him once, they'll try again. Well, what do you want me to do, sergeant? Go to trainer and try to make him talk? He won't. Still, we have to protect him. I want you to keep an eye on him all day today and tonight. I may be able to take over myself tomorrow. Just follow him. I want to know every place he goes and every person he talks to. Hmm. That's simple enough. When shall I report back? Hmm, whenever you think it necessary. And no matter how late it is tonight, don't hesitate to wake me up. That is, if you have anything <laughs> important. All right, Sergeant. He'll be sleeping late this morning. You can pick him up at the palace. Tall, husky, light hair, blue eyes. Nose has been broken, scar on the chin. Right. The clerk will point him out to you. Right. See you later, Sergeant. It was much later when Downey reported back. It was after midnight, and the sergeant was already asleep. The constable knocked on the door of his room in the barracks. Yes? Downey. Oh, right with you. Better get dressed. We're on our way. Go on, let's have it. Well, nothing important until about an hour ago. He was standing in the shadows outside of Monte Carlo. man came outside and he followed him. Who was the man? His uh, name is Rafferty. Trainer followed him to a cabin on 4th Street. Rafferty went inside, lit a lamp. Then Trainer knocked on the door. Rafferty opened it and Trainer forced his way in. One of the windows at the side of the cabin was open. And I could see and hear everything. I don't blame you for being surprised, Rafferty. Surprised? Why, uh, yeah, yeah, just a little. It's late. How'd you find out where I lived? What do you want, Jim? You told Barney where to find me, didn't you? Barney? I haven't seen him. Don't lie. Uh, Jim, I uh... said don't lie. I should have guessed you were working for him. No. Yes. Where is he? I don't know. Tell me where he is or I'll knock your teeth out. Oh, Jim, let go of my arm. You'll break it. Where is he? Oh, don't. Don't. I'll tell you. All right. Hurry up. Five miles north of here, downstream, there's a riverboat called the Golden Girl. Tied up ground. Barney's living on it. Who's with him? Joe, Duke, Shorty, I don't know. I didn't have anything to do with their trying to kill you. No? Who told you about it then? I, I, I mean... Oh, never mind. I haven't got time to waste on rats. Jim, you're not going there by yourself. Yes, I am. I'm going to get a canoe and take a little trip down the river. You're crazy. I'm going to find out if you're telling the truth. I am, I swear. I'm going to tie you up so you'll be here when I get back. Go on. Over by that shelf of the rope here. Down in gag Rafferty. Left him lying on the floor. I waited till Trainer had gone, then I went inside and cut the ropes. Where's Rafferty now? In jail. I booked him as a material witness. I thought you might want to talk to him. We'll do that on the way. The sergeant found Rafferty more than willing to talk. Got to understand, sergeant. I had nothing to do with this. It's all something that started down in Frisco. Uh, 
A diamond. A Carteret diamond. Barney stole it, and Jim is trying to get it back. I don't know a thing about it myself. You sound like it. Only what I've heard. And I'll be glad to help you in any way I can, Sergeant. I'd advise you to go after Jim. Barney's men were in town tonight. They were drinking. They may catch Jim on the way to the boat. Even if he gets there, well, one man against so many... You'll let me out now, won't you, Sergeant? No, Rafferty, you're staying right where you are. Trainer said he was taking a canoe. So will we. We can make just as fast time that way. It'll be easier to board the boat from the water. I'll stop at the run for a minute and get King. Come on. Right. Jim tied his canoe at the stern of the steamer. Then he climbed aboard. There were no lights. There was no sound. He tried the first door he came to. It was locked. But Jim realized that the lock was weak and that he could wrench the door open. He grasped the handle firmly, set himself, and pulled hard. The screws that held the bolt let loose, and the door flew back at him. Jim drew his gun as he stepped inside the salon. Barney was the only one in the big room. He started for his gun when he recognized Jim, but the detective stopped him. Don't do it, Barney. After last night, I don't mind shooting at all. Why, why it's Jim. Are you sure it's not my ghost? Oh, what are you talking about? It doesn't matter. I didn't expect to find you all alone, but since you are, things are going to be a lot simpler. Where is it? Where's the diamond? I haven't got any diamond. I'll see about that. I've got a hunch you wouldn't let it get very far away from you. Uh, it's not in your coat pockets. But what's this big bulge in your vest? <clears throat> well, all wrapped up in a silk handkerchief. Let's take a look. You won't get away with this, Jim. A lot of rock, isn't it? No wonder they'll pay 10000 to get it back. 10000 What's 10000 I can get 100000 I'll split even with you. Remember what my answer was when you tried to make me throw a fight? It still goes. Remember what you got for making an answer like that? How could I forget? This sort of makes us even. Why do you always stick your neck out? <laughs> it's a habit, Barney. I'm going to break it for you. Get him, men! Joe, Duke, and Shorty had entered the salon behind Jim's back. At Barney's command, they rushed him. And before he could even turn, he'd been overpowered. His gun and the diamond wrenched from his grasp. You got back just in time, Joe. I didn't hear your horses. Oh, we left them back away when we saw the light shining from the door. Figured you might have a visitor. Yes, you're lucky. You get a chance to make up for your bungling last night. There's no reason why you can't put a bullet through him before you dump him overboard here. Now, give me that diamond. Don't do it, Joe. What's that? Liza Warren. None other, Barney. How are you? And how are you, Jim? I'll take the diamond, Joe. Sure. Here. What is this? A double cross? Oh, it's more complicated than that, Barney. But it's easily explained. The boys and I had a talk in town tonight. They agreed with me that I was the one who should get rid of this. Really, Barney, to sell it as it is, that's asking for a prison term. It must be taken to Amsterdam and recut. Right, boys? Yeah, that's You're right, right, Liza. Right. And I'm the one to handle the transaction. But uh, what about me? You? Oh, you're to be eliminated, Barney. You and Jim. Now do you understand why I told you who had the diamond, Jim? I wanted you to find Barney for me. You did a good job. You're a good detective. 
It's too bad that you can't work at it a little longer. Don't shoot them in here, Joe. Take them outside first. All right, come on. Let's all, right, all, right. all right, all right. Come on, never mind. At that moment, Sergeant Preston had just tossed King aboard the steamer, and the sergeant and Constable Downey were following him over the rail. <laughs> the wild uproar inside the salon sent them running toward the open door. Come on, Downey. Right. Jim had decided to sell his life dearly and was lashing out with lefts and rights at Joe and Duke. Liza, afraid for her own life, was shrieking at Joe and Duke to hold their fire. Don't shoot, men! Don't shoot! Sergeant Downey waded into even the unequal eye. No! Get this body! King circled the males from a flying fist and took his position directly in front of Liza. He was watching his master, of course, but his instinct was to protect the woman. Liza had lost her first fear. She saw that both Joe and Duke had been disarmed by the sergeant and Downey. Jim was twisting Shorty's gun out of his hand. The tide of battle was in favor of Jim and the two members of the force. But it was still being waged fiercely on either side. And Liza wanted to escape. She tried to get past King. Let me by. King would have none of it. The only place where the woman would not be hurt was right where she was. And he insisted that she stay there. He drove her back every time she tried to run past him. And finally, her chance was gone. Joe, Duke, and Shorty, battered and arm-weary, gave up. The sergeant snapped a pair of handcuffs on each of their wrists. Uh, well, Liza, I didn't expect to find you still here. That dog. Keep an eye on them, Donnie. That horrible beast. What's this? I can't believe that King would hurt a lady. He wouldn't let me past him. And a good thing, sergeant. This is Liza Warren, the notorious Liza Warren. Oh, he was going to take the diamond to Amsterdam to have it recut. That awful dog. King couldn't understand why the woman was so angry with him. And he trotted around in back of the sergeant for protection. He felt badly all the time the sergeant and the man they had saved from drowning were talking. And his spirits didn't rise until the sergeant said, Now don't you worry, Jim. You'll get the reward and you'll get the credit for the capture of these crooks. What's the matter with you, boy? You didn't do anything wrong. You were a good dog. You did a fine job. This case is closed. You sent for me, Inspector? Yes, Sergeant. You've heard of Chet Craig? The gang leader? Yes, sir, I have. He and his gang are terrorizing the Yukon Territory, Sergeant. I'm giving you a special assignment. Get to Weisshaus as quickly as possible and run down Chet Craig and his gang. He's clever and quick with a gun, so be careful. But I'm counting on you to bring him in. Very well, Inspector. I'll leave right away. Yes, Chet Craig has managed to outwit others. And Sergeant Preston has a dangerous job on his hands. Anything might happen if Chet Craig discovers that Sergeant Preston is on his trail. Be sure to hear this exciting adventure Monday. These radio dramas, a feature of the challenge of the Yukon Incorporated, are created by George W. Trendle, produced by Trendle Campbell Enterprises, directed by Fred Flowerday, and edited by Fran Stryker. The part of Sergeant Preston is played by Paul Sutton. They are brought to you every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at this same time by Quaker Puff Wheat and Quaker Puff Rice. The breakfast cereal shot from guns.
This is J. Michael wishing you goodbye, good luck, and this is ABC, the American Broadcasting Company. That was Challenge of the Yukon, and that was first broadcast May the 26th, 1950. The name of that script was The Wand Diamond. And now we're going to follow this up with a CBS anthology series entitled You Are There, where they would actually take you back in history and imagine that they were doing a radio interview during a very historical period of time. You'll recognize some of the stars in here, that uh, that is, news stars, such as John Daly. This is You Are There, as first heard on October the 30th, 1949, and this is The Trial of Aaron Burr. John Daly in Richmond, Virginia. On this first day of September 1807, the nation may soon learn whether Aaron Burr, former vice president of the United States, is acquitted of treason or found guilty and sentenced to death. This is the 28th day of Colonel Burr's trial here in the 5th District Federal Court, and the climax is expected in an important legal decision by the presiding judge. Supreme Court Justice John Marshall is going to rule on a point of law on which may depend Aaron Burr's very life. Tempers are at fever pitch in this trial-obsessed city, Richmond, like the entire country is divided between those who believe Colonel Burr is guilty and should hang and those who are just as convinced that he is innocent. As we reported yesterday, Judge Marshall will convene this court at noon, a few minutes from now, and rule on the motion by Colonel Burr's attorneys. The defense contends that the whole basis of the government's case is untenable, since it has not been able and has not considered it necessary. September 1st, 1807, Richmond, Virginia. You are there. Aaron Burr on trial for his life. CBS takes you back 142 years to the event that established a precedent for the American concept of treason. All things are as they were then, except for one thing. With all the modern facilities of radio present at the trial, and CBS newsmen reporting from the scene. You are there. You are there is based on authentic historical fact and quotation. And now... Richmond, September 1st, 1807. A crowded federal courtroom and John Daly will be permitted to go on with its case against Colonel Byrd depends upon the decision Justice Marshall is to make this morning. The motion by the defense, if granted, would stop the prosecution from putting any more witnesses on the stand. And if Judge Marshall rules in favor of that motion, well, then it will be tantamount to a direction from the bench that the jury acquit Colonel Byrd. As you know, the court is sitting in the hall of the Virginia House of Delegates. It's stifling hot here in the courtroom, and the spectators, jammed into every available seat, are mopping their faces, waiting impatiently for today's session of the trial to resume. As usual, today's audience is made up largely of men in rough woolen shirts, trousers of homespun, with their hair tied in queues, frontier fashion. Nearly all of them are followers of President Jefferson's party, the Democratic Republicans, and they seem to be solidly behind the prosecution which is demanding Aaron Burr's life. In sharp contrast is the sprinkling of well-dressed planters and merchants in the audience. They're mostly members of the conservative Federalist Party, which 
has come to the aid of Colonel Burr. Now, since early this morning, Quincy Howe has been talking to members of both groups and found that all of them are more than willing to speak their minds, so strong is the partisan feeling among the people over this trial of Colonel Burr. So now to our CBS studios in Richmond and Quincy Howe. Uh, well, John, uh, all the Federalists I've talked to seem to think that Justice Marshall will grant the defense motion to stop further testimony. The Democratic Republicans, of course, say he will not. They say that no matter what Marshall thinks himself, he won't dare go against the popular feeling that Burr is guilty. But that's only opinion. Let's look at the facts. The indictment against Colonel Burr charges that he committed treason by assembling an armed force at Blennerhassett's Island in Virginia and taking them down the Mississippi to seize New Orleans. According to the prosecution, this was part of a bigger scheme to take the newly acquired Louisiana Territory away from the United States, to seize Mexico from Spain, and to set up the combined region as an independent country under the rule of Aaron Burr himself. But the government struck before the alleged plan could be put into operation and Burr was captured while trying to escape into Spanish territory. Two weeks ago, the prosecution began putting witnesses on the stand in an effort to prove its case. But within a few days, Colonel Burr moved to stop the government from doing this anymore. For ten days, Justice Marshall listened to debates on the pros and cons of that motion. Then, last Saturday, at the close of debate, he said he would give his ruling when the court resumed sitting today. I've just been informed that Colonel Burr is at the courthouse. He has arrived from the home of Mr. Luther Martin, his counsel, where he's being held in custody for the duration of the trial. Don Hollenbeck is with the colonel, so over to Don Hollenbeck. Don't be worried, Mr. Burr. Did you sleep well? We're speaking to you from an anteroom in the Virginia House of Delegates where Colonel Burr is waiting under guard until the court convenes. He's talking now with a group of ladies and gentlemen who've come here to wish him well at this crucial point in his trial. The colonel has promised to join us at our CBS microphone in a moment. In the group chatting with him, I see Mr. Washington Irving, the popular young New York essayist. We understand he was engaged by a friend of Colonel Burr to write newspaper accounts of the trial. Oh, Colonel Burr has now ended his conversation. He's coming this way. The colonel's a rather short man, slim, walks very erect, probably a carryover from his years of military service during the Revolution. As you probably know, Colonel Burr is a very able lawyer, and he's taken an active part in his own defense. Oh, Colonel Burr, sir, we have Judge yes. Marshall's permission to ask you a few questions, if you consent. I'm at your disposal, sir. Well, now, as a lawyer, sir, do you think Judge Marshall will grant your motion and stop the prosecution from presenting any more of its witnesses? He must. He cannot do otherwise without violating the terms of the Constitution. How's that, Colonel? Well, it's quite simple. According to the Constitution, levying war against the United States is treason. It stipulates that conviction of treason shall only occur on the evidence given in open court by two witnesses to the same overt act. Now, mark that. The act must be overt, direct, clear-cut. And there must be two witnesses. Has the prosecution been able to produce two witnesses to testify that I was at uh, Glenahassett's Island when the alleged act of treason was committed? Hmm? No, they haven't. And they cannot because it's common knowledge that on December 11th I was 200 miles away in Kentucky. But, Colonel, your men on Blennerhassett's Island... Has the government been able to prove that they committed treason? Hmm? Of course not. The prosecution witnesses have offered nothing but hearsay and innuendo. All right, Colonel, but what about the testimony of Jacob Albright? What about it, indeed? 
Mr. Albright, an ignorant laborer, testified that he saw 20 or 30 men bearing arms at Blennerhassett's Island on the night of December 10th. Now, could such a handful of men even dream of undertaking to revolutionize the Western territories and uh, detach them from the United States? Well, perhaps not by themselves, sir, but General Eaton and his testimony said you also counted heavily on the assistance of General Wilkinson, the mm. uh, commander-in-chief of United States Army forces in Louisiana Territory. General Eaton is a discredited scoundrel, and I might add that his military title is purely self-administered. Now, Mr. Hollenbeck, consider the circumstances in which he made his deposition against me. He'd been pressing a claim for $10,000 against the government for several years with no success. But as soon as he agreed to appear against me, the government paid his claim in full. Well, are you charging that General Eden's testimony was bribed and perjured? I... If the shoe fits, Eaton is welcome to wear it. This whole charge against me is rubbish, vicious rubbish. I'm confident that Justice Marshall will grant my motion and that the case will be quickly turned over to the jury. And if that should happen, Colonel Burr, do you, do you expect the jury to acquit you? Well, as to that, I realize I'm not popular. I've been the victim of character assassination, even at the hands of President Jefferson. People are prejudiced. Still, I do not ask the jury to love me. I merely ask that they love and respect the Constitution of the United States. If they do, I shall be acquitted. Thank you, Colonel Aaron Burr. Not so. This is Don Hollenbeck returning you to John Daly in the courtroom. Colonel Burr's attorneys, Federalist Party leaders to a man, have just entered the courtroom. There's Mr. Edmund Randolph, a former governor of Virginia. With him are Mr. Charles Lee, Mr. John Wickham, and, of course, the eminent Mr. Luther Martin. Mr. Martin was a member of the Continental Congress and the Constitutional Convention. He's heavy-set, broad-shouldered, favors a careless manner of dress, but... He's known to have few equals in eloquence or knowledge of the law. He and his colleagues are passing this way. Mr. Martin. Yes? May we have a word with you, sir? By all means. You may recall that we had the pleasure of interviewing you once before during the impeachment proceedings against Justice Chase. Oh, yes, in Washington. I remember very well. Well, sir, the government's attorney, Mr. Hay, implied in his arguments that if Justice Marshall rules in favor of your client, Colonel Burr, he may face impeachment proceedings himself. Mr. Hayes' remarks were quite out of order. I'd call it pressure tactics to intimidate the bench. Well, Mr. Martin, how do you think Justice Marshall will rule? Well, I'm sure he won't yield to threats. He'll interpret the Constitution as any honest man must interpret it. He must not permit the prosecution to introduce into this country the evil doctrine of constructive treason. Constructive treasons? Yes, sir. Constructive treason is the European theory of treason by intent and not by action. There's an important difference between these two. Our Constitution expressly defines that treason should not consist of thoughts, of words, even of conspiracies, but of overt actions. If Mr. Jefferson has his way, that constitutional safeguard against tyranny will be eliminated. He'll stop at nothing in his desire to crucify Colonel Burr. But he will fail. Well, thank you, Mr. Martin. The chief counsel for the defense is going up the aisle toward his desk at the front of the courtroom as the hour for convening draws closer. While he was speaking, the government's attorneys prosecuting the case against Colonel Burr entered the courtroom, and they are already in their seats. And by the way, I see... Ned Kalmer is talking with United States Attorney George Hay, who heads the prosecution. 
Go ahead, Ned Calmer. I'm not quite sure. Oh, Mr. Hay, could you speak to us now? Colonel Burr has just predicted that Justice Marshall will grant his motion to block any more prosecution witnesses from taking the stand. May we have your comment on that? You certainly may, sir. Colonel Burr has a way of permitting his wishes to influence his predictions. That tendency has put the colonel out on a limb before. May do so again today. But what about the argument that Colonel Burr was not at Bunnerhassett's Island and that his men on the island can't be accused of levying war because they never resorted to force? That argument won't hold up. If Colonel Burr's men didn't use force, it was only because the government acted before they had a chance to do so. And what difference does it make whether Colonel Burr was at Blennerhassett's Island or not? We have shown that Aaron Burr plotted against our country. And we've shown that he assembled armed men and moved those men toward the execution of that plot. Now, if that isn't treason, what in the name of heaven is? Well, the defense says... I tell you, sir, if the defense has its way... It will be impossible for the government to defend itself against traitors. If Justice Marshall grants the defense motion, every traitor in our country will redouble his plotting without fear of punishment. One more thing, Mr. Hay. Mr. Martin has charged that your disregard for the question of whether Burr was at Bunnerhassett's Island and whether his men actually had to resort to force amounts to an attempt to introduce the doctrine of constructive treason. Uh, that is, treason by intent. He claims that this would mean the end of our civil liberties. Could we have your opinion about that? How very amusing. Mr. Martin posing as a defender of civil liberties. Did Mr. Martin have any respect for civil liberties when he was Attorney General of the State of Maryland? No, he did not. He persecuted his political opponents without mercy. Sir, I charge Mr. Martin. I charge Mr. Martin with playing politics at the risk of the nation's safety. And I charge him with defending an own murderer, Aaron Burr, the man who killed the leader of Martin's own party, Alexander Hamilton. Oh, I... Uh, pardon me, sir. I see the jury is entering, and I must speak to my colleagues. Thank you, Mr. Hay. The United States Attorney has rejoined his staff. As he said, the 12 jurors have entered the courtroom. They're seating themselves in the row of chairs to the right of the judge's bench. At... All right. Justice Marshall has entered the courtroom. He came in through a door behind the bench. John Daly now has a better view of Judge Marshall than I have, so back to John Daly. Justice Marshall is walking toward the bench. As you probably know, he is not only the federal judge of this circuit, but is also Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court. He makes an impressive figure in the black robes of his office. He's a tall man, carries his head a bit to one side, and there's an expression of great seriousness on his face. The decision he is to make today must weigh heavily on him, may well be the most important of his Here career. That's the clerk of the court. Let's listen. All persons having business before the circuit court of the United States of America, in and for the Fifth Circuit and District, draw near and ye shall be heard. Justice Marshall nods to the prosecution and defense lawyers, seats himself and... Now, the lawyers, spectators, and jurymen on signal all do likewise. The case of the United States of America versus Aaron Burr will continue. Bring in the accused. As the clerk of the court motions toward a door at the side of the chamber, Colonel Aaron Burr appears, walks swiftly toward the prisoner's box, two guards beside him. There's some hissing and booing from among the spectators, but 
Colonel Burr ignores it, shakes hands with his lawyers, seats himself, and now Judge Marshall. <clears throat> the, um, the question now to be decided has been argued in a manner worthy of its importance. Counsel on each side has been of the utmost aid to the court in forming the opinion it is about to deliver. The indictment charges the prisoner with treason in levying war against the United States and alleges an overt act of levying war. That alleged act must be proved by two witnesses. If the act be not proved by two witnesses, all other testimony must be irrelevant. Now then, the prosecution has not brought forward any witness to prove the actual presence of the accused at Benahasset Island on the date of issue. On the contrary, the fact of his absence is not disputed by counsel for the United States. Consequently, since counsel for the United States has failed to establish the overt act of treason on the part of the accused, it is the deepest conviction of the court that the motion made by the defense must prevail. Justice Marshall has ruled for the defense. The prosecution will not be permitted to put any more witnesses on the stand. Colonel Burr and his lawyers very naturally are smiling triumphantly. The prosecution or government attorneys, on the other hand, appear to be almost stunned by the judge's decision. United States Attorney Hay is speaking in a low voice with the other members of his staff, and they seem now to be in general agreement as to what to do, and Mr. Hay is on his feet. Your Honor, in view of this decision by the court, the United States have no alternative but to leave the case to the jury. The United States rests. Judge Marshall's face is expressionless. He turns now to the defense lawyers and Mr. Luther Martin, chief of the defense, is risen. Your Honor, the defense rests. The jury have heard the opinion of the court on the law of the case. They will apply that law to the facts as presented and find a verdict of guilty or not guilty as their own conscience may direct. The jury will now retire for the purpose of coming to a decision. And the fate of Aaron Burr is now in the hands of the jury. Justice Marshall is leaving the courtroom. Jurors are filing out also. The judge will retire to his chambers, and in all probability, he will not emerge again until the jury is ready with the verdict. The spectators are leaving the court, going outside to get a breath of fresh air, but they're eager to have the court reconvene, reconvene rather, at any moment and to hear the final decision. Ken Roberts is out there on the steps of this imposing courthouse building, and he can and has been sampling the public's opinion of Judge Marshall's decision, meanwhile taking a sort of informal poll as to what the public think the jury's verdict is going to be. So go ahead, Ken Roberts. Oh, John, this is one of the... Oh, John. Oh, John. 
Uh, this scene out here is really something to watch, John. People are milling around all over the square, trampling down the grass, arguing vehemently with each other. Some of them are jubilant, others are red-faced with rage. Hundreds of them were unable to get into the courtroom this morning. They've been waiting here in the broiling sun, and that hasn't helped their tempers any. Uh, most of these people apparently intend to wait out here until the jury's verdict is in. Uh, with me, for instance, is a gentleman who says he'll stay here if it takes all night. He uh, wears the fancy dress uniform of a general in the Tennessee militia. He is General Andrew Jackson. Uh, General Jackson tells me he was brought here as a government witness because he contracted to build boats for Colonel Burr's expedition. But he was not put on the stand. Yes, and I'll tell you why they didn't put me on the stand, because I know that Aaron Burr is as innocent of treason as you or I. Well, General Jackson, do you have proof of Colonel Burr's innocence? Proof? Why, the colonel told me personally that he intended to lead an army into Mexico. He intended to liberate Mexico from Spain and make it a part of the United States. Now, is that treason? No, Sir Blasted, that's patriotism. But, General, it's claimed he meant to seize Mexico and Louisiana for himself, even make himself an emperor. Oh, no, sir, no, no, no. Only Mexico, and not for himself, for the United States. I have his word for that. The word of a gentleman and a soldier. The word of a murderer, the word of a traitor. Madam, now, see here, You ought to be ashamed of yourself standing up for a scoundrel like Aaron Burr. Madam, I'll thank you to mind your own business. I was speaking to this gentleman here. The whole country knows what Aaron Burr was up to. Just a moment, madam, please. But Please. this man said that Aaron Burr... Yes, but let's do this one at a time, madam. Please. Now, General Jackson, you think the jury will bring in a verdict of not guilty? If they don't, they ought to be drawn and quartered and the pieces scattered to the four winds. Thank you, General Andrew Jackson. And now, madam... Thank you, you for what? For pouring that Federalist poison into your ear? Madam, I am not a Federalist. I'm as good a Democratic Republican as you are. Then I say heaven protect madam, us from please. your kind of Democratic Republican. Instead of dragging him into court, President Jefferson General should have struck a medal for Colonel Burr. We frontier General Jackson, know General, that please. we'll have to fight. If you don't we'll mind, sir, you've had your we'll... chance. Now, please give this lady her chance to speak. Well, well, Thank well. Thank you but, again, but, uh, General... Now, madam, would you tell us your name, please? I'm Mrs. Emily Shepard. I see. And do you live here in Richmond? Yes. And a sorry place it is to live these days. Full of rich Federalists hobnobbing with Aaron Burr, sneering at the ordinary people, scorning President Jefferson and the Republic. It's a disgrace the way they've made a hero of that man, giving great dinner parties for him, and him a traitor to his country. Why, why Justice Marshall himself attended one of those parties. It's shameful. Shameful. Do you mean that Judge Marshall is prejudiced in favor of Colonel Burr? He's a Federalist, isn't he? What can you expect a Federalist? I say it's high time they learn their lesson. And they'll learn it when Aaron Burr is hanged by the neck. Thank you, Mrs. Emily Shepard. Judging from what's being said out here, I'd guess those reactions from Mrs. Shepard and General Jackson just about sum up the two opposing attitudes. Uh, Quincy Howe in our CBS studios here in Richmond has been examining the situation. He's ready now with his analysis. So back to CBS Richmond, Quincy Howe reporting. It must be clear by now that these past 28 days have witnessed something uh, much more than just a trial at law. What's been going on here has been a basic struggle between our two political parties, the Federalists on the one hand and the Democratic Republicans on the other. Ever since President Jefferson, leader of the Democratic Republicans, indicated his desire to see Colonel Burr convicted, the Federalists have made Aaron Burr's cause their cause. Many Democratic Republicans say that the New England Federalists are sympathetic to Burr because they themselves have plotted to withdraw New England from the Union. They charge that Federalists in general have seized on this Burr trial as an opportunity to embarrass the Jefferson administration. 
Now, it's clear from the jurors' own statements in court that they are predominantly Democratic Republicans. And, as such, they must have backed President Jefferson against the Federalists in the struggle over ratifying the Louisiana Purchase four years ago. They might therefore be inclined to believe the charge that Burr tried to steal the Louisiana Territory, which would have cut off the Mississippi for American commerce, and that Burr also plotted with England in that very connection. Well, in any case, all this has led to such an intense popular feeling against Burr that for two weeks it was just about impossible to assemble an unbiased jury. It was Colonel Burr himself who finally broke the deadlock by declaring he would take his chances even with a jury of manifest Democratic-Republican leanings. Now here, by tape recording, is the statement Aaron Burr made to the court on August 15th. Your Honor, I'm under the necessity of taking men in some degree prejudiced against me or of having a fourth panel of prospective jurors called. I'm unwilling to submit to the delay of another panel, and so I accept the consequences. I hope the jury will do me justice. Uh, now, uh, on the basis of all this, is it likely that the jurors will accept Justice Marshall's opinion of the law and acquit Aaron Burr, or will the jury bring back a verdict of guilty? This is Quincy Howe returning you to the courtroom at the Hall of Delegates and John Daly. The jury returned from their deliberations a few moments ago is already seated in the box and Justice Marshall is on the bench. The spectators have reassembled. They are very quiet. They know that this is the moment that they and the entire country have been waiting for. Every seat is full and the atmosphere of the courtroom is charged with excitement and tension. Judge Marshall is leaning forward right now, whispering to the clerk of the court. As always, there is a slight delay as the scene is set for the dramatic moment of a trial, the handing down of a verdict by the jury. Now the clerk has left the bench, is walking toward the jury box, and in a moment, we'll know whether Aaron Burr is to be found guilty of treason and sentenced to hang, or the clerk is speaking. Have you reached a unanimous verdict? I. How do you find? We of the jury say that from the evidence submitted to us under this indictment, Aaron Burr is not proved to have committed treason. We therefore find him not guilty. Not guilty. The jury has acquitted Aaron Burr. Colonel Burr is standing triumphantly in the prisoner's box and pandemonium has broken loose among the spectators. Most of them are very obviously bitterly disappointed. However, some friends are rushing up to Colonel Burr and the defense lawyers congratulating them on their victory. Considering the bitterness that we have seen here in this courtroom, this is sure to be regarded by many people as a triumph for American justice. When a man so widely supposed to be a traitor in the midst of political rancor, sometimes bordering on hysteria, can be acquitted in a court of law. However, we call your attention to the odd phrasing of the verdict. It seems to indicate that the jurors themselves may still have some reservations about Colonel Burr's innocence. If they do, they have suppressed their own feelings and accepted Judge Marshall's interpretation of the law. September 1st, 1807. Aaron Burr is acquitted of the charge of treason and a precedent 
for the American concept of justice is established. You have been listening to the trial of Aaron Burr in the series, You Are There. The trial of Aaron Burr was written by Michael Sklar, directed by John Dietz, and produced by the CBS Documentary Unit under the supervision of Werner Michel. Aaron Burr was played by Martin Gable. Charles Webster was Justice John Marshall. Eric Dressler was Andrew Jackson. James Goss, Luther Martin. Paul Mann was U.S. Attorney Hay. Others in the cast included Agnes Young, Guy Sorrell, and Bert Cowlin. Beginning with this broadcast, You Are There will be heard every fourth Sunday at this time. Listen on November 27th, four weeks from today, over many of these same stations. Next month, 1830, Baltimore, Maryland. The race between the first American locomotive and a horse-drawn carriage. You are there. This is CBS, and this fall you'll hear them all on the Columbia Broadcasting System. It's a unique uh, view of history, isn't it? That was You Are There as first broadcast on the 30th of October, 1949. And in that one, they were covering the trial of Aaron Burr. Now we're going to follow up with a game show that was a whole lot of fun. Instead of uh, seeing how much trivia or how much um, uh, information was uh, maintained by the uh, participants in the game show, this one had to do with who could come up with the best joke. And it was entitled, Can You Top This? This was first broadcast back on November the 7th in 1949. Can You Top This? Presented by the Colgate Palmolive Feet Company, makers of Colgate Dental Cream to clean your breath while you clean your teeth and Palmolive Shave Creams for smoother, more comfortable shaves. Can You Top This? Starring Senator Ford. Good evening. Harry Hirschfield. Howdy. And Joe Laurie Jr. Hello. And now here's Colgate Palmolive Feet Company's Master of Ceremonies, Ward Wilson. Good evening, friends. Welcome to Can You Top This, our unrehearsed give-out of gags. Our three wits do not know what jokes have been chosen until the people's representative, Peter Donald, tells them on the air. Our three gagsters have no scripts. They rely on memory and ability to switch jokes and make them fit the subject. If Peter Donald tells you a submitted story, you get $10 plus a phonograph record, personally autographed by our wits, of Peter Donald telling your story on the air. Laughs are registered on the big Colgate Palmolive laugh meter in full view of the studio audience. Each time the wits fail to top your score, you win an additional $5, which means you may win $25. So let's dig up and get on with the laughs. Are you ready, fellas? Ready. ready. Yes, sir. All right, sir. Thank you for the billing, Senator. Uh, here's the first joke of the evening, and it comes from Robert E. Soltikowski of Chicago, Illinois, and it's on the subject of bus. Bus. Bus? Yeah, steer, you know. Automobile, bus. Oh. So... (laughs) (laughs) Why the surprise, Senator? I don't know. You really gave him a bus in the house. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was my youngest son, maybe. I don't know. Well, anyway, Peter Donald, suppose you drive on. Start the evening off. Well, a fellow named, uh, fellow named uh, Frank Boswick is traveling on the road. He's a traveling salesman. He's happened to be selling uh, uh, windshield wipers for television screens, so you only get clean material comes through there. You know? <laughs> so he's on the road with this thing, and he's traveling around. He gets to one city, 
And he's got to get out to a certain distributor. And there's a bus, and it's the rush hour. And he gets on this bus in this strange city, and it is jammed and packed. You know how the rush hour is on a bus, and the guy behind you is reading your newspaper, and the guy in front of you is turning the pages with his breath, you know? And <laughs> so he's jammed in. Before he can ask the driver where to get off, he gets pushed all the way back to the bus, and he's jammed in there. So he, he's a little confused. He says, say, can anybody tell me if this bus stops at Elm Street? So from somewhere, a little voice says, It does, wee boy, it does. Well, he says, uh, Thanks, uh, buddy, thanks. But he says, uh, Where are you? Who said that? So he says, Well, I'm, 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 I'm down here behind you. He says, You've been hanging on to me suspenders for the last three blocks. He says, I'm, I'm down here. Well, the fellow says, It's very kind of you. He says, uh, I'm a stranger in town. I don't know where Elm Street is. Will you tell me when to get off? Oh, he says, Sure, you just watch me. Well, he said, uh, Are you going to Elm Street, too? He says, No, no, I'm going much further on. So you just watch me and you get off the bus five blocks before I do. <laughs> well, uh, you better uh, pay another fare too, Pete. That was uh, a rather faulty 800 there. It was uh, prematurely 600 well, that kicked up faulty. to 800. That's, that's, that's better than average. 500 would be average. I, I'll stick up for you, Pete. Yeah. Well, all right. Uh, Mr. Palmolive, however, says it was... Uh, Probably better than I'll do. <laughs> well, that's what we have yet to see, the three of you over there. But uh, Mr. Uh, Solikowski has 800 to start with, and that means $10. And whether you top him or not, we shall now see as we go in quest of <laughs> jokes with uh, Joe Laurie Jr. first. A little Italian fellow goes up to a fellow. He says, I want to go to Newark. Newark, New Jersey. He says, what bus do I take? So the fellow says, take bus number 410. He says, grazie, grazie. So two hours later, the guy happens to pass the corner, and there's a the little Italian fellow standing there he says, didn't you get your bus yet for Newark? He said, I won't have to wait too long. 400 pass, only wait for 10 more. Well, I won't keep you waiting either, Joe. That was uh, a zooming 1,000 on the Colgate Palmolive laugh meter. And uh, congratulations on your linguistic ability, good, too. Huh? I didn't know that you spoke foreign languages. But uh, they're foreign to me. <laughs> Let's see what Harry Hirschfield has to offer. There's a kind of a goofish moron. He's getting a job. <laughs> He's getting a job. He wants a job as a, uh, driving a bus. They said, you ever drive a bus before? He said, no. Well, he said, all you have to do is watch out for courtesy. You've got to think of the passengers. Different passengers have come on and they give you the names of streets. And all you remember is when they tell you the name of the streets that they want, you just remember it. So the first guy on, he said, I can do that. So the first guy comes on and said, Cherry Street. He said, yeah, Cherry Street, Cherry Street. Another guy says, Grand Boulevard. He said, oh, Grand Boulevard, Grand Boulevard. Another guy says, Maple Street. Maple Street, yeah, 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 Maple Street. Another guy comes up and says, I want, I want Utica Avenue. He said, Utica Avenue. Finally, another guy comes on and says, I want Grand Boulevard. He says, you'll have to take another street. Somebody just took Grand Boulevard. <laughs> You took the Colgate Palmolive laugh meter for a ride, too. 1,000, to be exact. Uh, having topped uh, Mr. Solikowski's uh, original 800, he still has that lonesome $10. And uh, we move over to Senator Ford for our third gag of the round. Well, uh, there were two men talking and uh, two young fellows, and one of them's father was a sculptor. So he said uh, to the other fellow, he says, you know, my father made a bust of me. And the other fellow says, don't blame your old man for everything. You know, that's what... <laughs> 
That's what I thought of when I thought you said bust. You know, I thought of a sculptor right away. Well, I'm glad you got it in anyway, Senator. Well, I thought I'd throw it in as long as I thought of it. <laughs> now, talking about buses, I got another terrible shock today. A green bus actually stopped at a red light again. <laughs> well, talking about buses, which I think we were... Up in my hometown, there's, a, there's an old fellow by the name of Noah who runs a, a bus. He operates a bus up there. It isn't one of those modern buses like ours, you know. It's, uh, it's so far as buses run. This one just about runs. That's about all. And the townsfolk, they, they make cracks about it. And one day, the town clown stopped the bus, and he says, Hey, Noah, is your ark all filled? Noah says, nope, room for one more jackass. Get in. And we had room for one more thousand that time on the uh, Palmolive Colgate Laugh Meter, Senator. So uh, each of our three wits were successful this time in topping Mr. Solikowski's original 800. So I'm afraid we'll have to leave him with his original investment of $10. Uh, we'll send that along with the compliments of Colgate Dental Cream. We can't send him a thousand club certificate, but I tell you what we can do. We can send him a copy of that laugh-packed and brand-new joke book, Cream of the Crop, written by our three wits. And in addition, we're sending Mr. Solikowski a phonograph record of Peter Donald telling his story on the air. Well, men, let's dig in once again and see what we have to offer in another round of wit and humor here. Here's a joke which was sent in by T. Curtis Cutts of Bradford, Massachusetts. And uh, the subject of this joke is something I know you're all very familiar with. Honesty. Honesty. You want to bet? <laughs> <laughs> Not too much, Joe, at this point. However, let's get over and uh, speaking of bets, here's a good one in Peter Donald. Well, this is the, uh, the owner of a large estate, an elderly gentleman. And he had these beautiful, beautiful grounds and everything. But he got a little trouble because all the kids in the neighborhood would make raids on his orchard, and they'd steal all his fruit. So he was a very kind, sweet old man, and he thought that rather than chastising these kids, he'd win them over to honesty. So he decided to give a big party, and he invited all these little roughnecks, all these little kids, and he stuffed them with strawberries and cream and everything. They had a terrific time. And finally, when they were having the happiest time of the day, he thought maybe he could draw a little moral lesson. So he said, Now, boys, he said, Tell me honestly... Would those berries have tasted as good if you had stolen them? And all the little kids with the pink cheeks looked at him. They said, no, sir. Those berries would not have tasted as good if we had stolen them. He said, that's right, my little man. And can you tell me why? They said, yeah, because we wouldn't have had no cream and sugar on them. <laughs> Mentioning sugar, that sounded kind of sweet to uh, Mr. Cutts, I imagine, Peter. One thousand on the Colgate Palm Olive Shave Meter, making the cause most desperate for our three wits now as they try not only failingly to top it, but just to tie it. All three hands are up like eager beavers, though. So uh, <laughs> let's jump over to Senator Ford and start festivity. Oh, brother, here's a, a very, very old gag on honesty. At one of those meetings where people give uh, testimonials, a fella got up and began to tell about the first time he had a, a pang of conscience. He said, I went into a shoe store. The proprietor was in the back. There was nobody around. And I got the impulse to walk over and steal a $5 pair of shoes. But he said, uh, suddenly, a still small voice stopped me. 
And I, I, I didn't steal those $5 shoes. I reached up on another shelf and stole a $7 pair. <laughs> then there's another one I could tell that might um, go in there. That's, a, that's too old to tell. I think that's why I was no good. Well, I don't know. I could tell another one that would be on honesty. You want me to tell another one? Yeah, I think it'd be very good. Well, um... Aunt, Aunt Nellie uh, took her two little nieces. They were about 10 or 12 years old. You know how kids are these days, these modern kids. She took them to the zoo. And uh, when they came to the ostrich cage, the old lady began to give out with the story of the fabulous bird and how it brought babies. One kid winked at the other one and says, Don't you think it's about time we told the old lady the truth? They should have been reversed, Senator. The first one got 600 on the Colgate-Palmolive shave meter, and uh, the other one got 1,000. So That's uh, all right. Count the honest one, the first one. <laughs> okay, the 600 goes in. Yeah. You're out in a fruitless chase anyway. So, Harry Hirschfield, how about yeah, you? I thought of uh, a couple of here screwball gags I've heard in the last few days that fit in this. One I want to toss in first. A salesman comes off the road. So he starts telling about his conquests. He said, uh, I met a girl in Detroit... And I don't know what I should or not. He says, I promised to telephone her the minute I got back here. He said, I'll be honest with you. I wouldn't call her beautiful. I wouldn't call her intelligent. The other guy says, I wouldn't call her. (laughs) (laughs) Well, here's another screwball gag. A guy runs in with his little boy. And he runs into a doctor. Says, doctor, quick, do something for the boy. So the doctor takes his stethoscope and he puts it on the kid's chest. And he says, uh-huh, that heart, the ticker, that heart. Uh-huh, this is not for me. I've got to tell you the truth. This, I, this is, this is Carpolia heart. I know this. This is not for me. I'll have to call Professor Eddie Weber. He is the man for this. So they call Professor Weber. And he comes in. And he comes in and he takes the stethoscope and puts it on the little kid. He says, huh, this is not Scarpola heart. This tick of this heart, this beat, is Pavolia heart. It's Pavolia heart. You must get Dr. Schnutz. So the father says, get him quick, please. So Professor Schnutz comes in. And he puts a stethoscope to the kid and he says, uh-huh. That's Pavolia heart. I know that tick. That tick in the beat is Pavolia heart. And he turns to the father and says, how long has it been going on like this with the boy? He says, ever since he swallowed a watch this morning. <laughs> Well, Harry, you, uh, you tied Senator on the uh, preface. That got 600 on the Colgate. I didn't Palmolive know that Xavier. Weber used that kind of a dialect. Probably <laughs> <laughs> used anything. <laughs> However, Harry did move up to 800 on the second one, so the balance is 1,400, neither of which counts. <laughs> we'll skip over to Joe Laurie, Jr. Well, I could tell the one about the honest grafter. You could do that, yeah. A tree surgeon. <laughs> the one I want to tell is about two women get in the car... And when they're sitting down, one says, you know what? I didn't pay the conductor. I got by. I didn't pay to my fare. She says, well, that's terrible. Don't you know honesty is the best policy? Honesty pays. You shouldn't do a thing like that. Honesty is the best policy. You'll see that honesty pays through life. She says, well, all right. You make me feel bad. So she goes over. When she comes back, she says, you are right. Honesty certainly pays. I gave him a quarter and he gave me change for a half a buck.
Well, Joe, the tree surgeon got you 250 on the Colgate Palmolive That I threw meter. in. That's a branch joke. Oh, I see. I'll, I thought you left me out on a limb for a while. <laughs> no. But then you came up with the zooming one. I know all about that, too. Leaf. Okay, how about you, Senator? Well, no, I mean what he was talking about. I, a fellow went into a restaurant, and he, he got a bowl of soup, and he said to the waiter, Hey, there's a twig in my soup. The waiter said, That's all right. We got branches all over. <laughs> I thought I just thought of another bus story. <laughs> We're back you to the bus the again, bus. Well, go ahead. Well, Drive off. A crowded bus. A crowded bus and two sailors come in. You know, good, rowdy sailors. And one wiggles himself into a seat, and the other sailor sits on his lap. And they're riding along like that way, and in comes a beautiful, luscious blonde. And the sailor in beneath there says, George, be a gentleman. Give the lady a seat. <laughs> Very good, Harry, and uh, as well as you fellas tried, none of you were able to top from the start Mr. Cutts' original 1000 So, uh, sizing up the situation, we send Mr. Cutts $25 with the compliments of Colgate Dental Cream, plus a 1000 Club certificate, and uh, in addition, we're sending Mr. Cutts a phonograph record of Peter Donald telling his story on the air. <laughs> Well, let's start off with a brand new joke this time. This one comes from uh, a lady who has a first name I never heard before, Mrs. Carried E. Hoagland of Akron, Ohio. And uh, the subject of this round is, uh, hmm, shouldn't happen to you, dentist. <laughs> dentist. <laughs> so, Pete, you have enough pull. Let's see how you come out. Well, this, uh, this happened over in Brooklyn, and a girl rushed into a dentist's office. She said, sir, listen, and you, Dr. Jekyll, the dentist... <laughs> doctor says, uh, yes, miss, I'm Dr. Jerkel, I'm the dentist, but uh, do you have an appointment? She says, listen, Buster, when my tooth starts aching, it don't call me up for no reservation. <laughs> I'm suffering. It's awful, it's terrible, I'm suffering. Well, he says, as a matter of fact, he says, I do have a few minutes, I'll examine it, sit in the chair. Well, she says, look, I think it's my lower right, my cuspidor down there. <laughs> Awful, it's driving me out of my mind. Well, he says, uh, how long has it been aching? Well, she said, let me see now. It's been aching since, uh, since last Easter. <laughs> I remember because I was eating a spring chicken and I bit too hard on one of the springs and I broke it. <laughs> oh, she says, it's been driving me crazy since last spring. It's been, I'm ready to wind up in one of those lunatic asylums or something. <laughs> said, just a minute, he says, young woman, you say this tooth has been torturing you like this since last spring? He says, why didn't you come to me sooner? She says, because, dopey, I heard on the radio you should go to your dentist every six months, and my six months only came around I don't think I need enlighten you, Pete, but it was a booming 1,000 on the Colgate Palm Olive Laugh Meter that time. And uh, also, needless to say, an automatic $25 from Mrs. Hoagland. So uh, you fellas seem to be stymied for the second time tonight. However, nothing ventured, nothing gained as we move over to Harry Hirschfield. Well, I think this is a screwball gag. There's a dentist sitting and he's very morose. He's got love affair. And he doesn't know whether the girl loves him or not. And he's upset. And in walks a guy with perfect teeth. He said, Doctor, I've never, never been to a dentist. It's the first time. 
I have fine teeth, but I have one little tooth I think that needs a filling. I wish you would attend to it. The doctor said, just let me see. He said, better give you gas. Do you ever have a gas? He said, no. So he gave him gas, and while the guy's under the gas, he gets berserk, this dentist, about this girl, and he has to take this fellow's teeth out. She loves me. She loves me not. She loves me. She loves me not. She loves me. She loves me not. After he took out all the teeth, this guy comes to. He says, gas ain't bad, but it certainly makes you talk funny. <laughs> Talk funny enough, too, Harry, that time. Funny enough to get 1,000 on the Colgate Palmoil of Laugh Meter, tying Mrs. Hoagland's one grand, but not stopping it. So, uh, Joe, what do you have to offer? Well, I've got one to throw in here just a little bit. This is Shorty. It's about a poor little kid, and he's talking to another kid. Oh, this poor little kid. He's got his old man's coat on and everything. It's a terrible-looking kid. And he says, my father got a new set of teeth today. He says, yeah, what is he going to do with the old ones? He says, I guess they'll cut him down and make me wear him. <laughs> the one I want to tell, though, Harry reminded me of all the teeth, well, Mrs. Epstein goes to a dentist. And she says, the teeth are bothering me. So he's, he looks, examines her, and says, Mrs. Epstein, I'm sorry to tell you. I'll have to take every tooth out. They're packed, they're bad, they're bad. She says, oh, no, no, not the whole mouth. She says, every tooth in your head will have to come out. She says, do me a favor, please. She says, what? She says, please, leave me one tooth. She says, why do you want one tooth? She says, because when I smile, I should look pretty. <laughs> Two one-thousands that time on the Colgate Palmolive of Laugh Meter. Joe, keeping everything intact as we move over to Senator Ford. Well, you know, Harry, wherever, wherever anybody meets Harry, Harry's always telling jokes about two guys on a streetcar or something. He's always telling jokes. Well, he, I can tell this one on him because he told it to me. Uh, not so long ago, he had trouble with his teeth. And he went to the dentist, and of course, the first thing he did when he got in the chair was to start to tell jokes. So the dentist says, open your mouth, and he starts to put in four yards of, of uh, cloth and, you know, a lot of cotton and a half a pound of Brillo. And finally, Harry can't talk anymore. He says, what, what's the idea of that? And the doctor says, that's my gag. That's my gag and yours, too, Senator. That was a zooming 1,000 that well, time. Well, I wasn't going to tell. I mean, I just threw that in. I well, you throw it in. Uh, we're a little bit cramped for time. If you have a oh. quickie, we'll... Uh, no, no, go ahead. No, no, well, you no can't mind. pass a as thousand. As long as it hit a thousand, what's he just worrying about it? <laughs> hey, well, we all hit one thousand, but we still send Mrs. Hoagland $25 with the compliments of palm olive shave creams plus a one thousand club certificate. And in addition, we're sending her a phonograph record of Peter Donald telling her story on the air. Back to the joke business once again, fellas. Here's one submitted by Mary E. Lang of Fairfield, Connecticut, and it's on the subject of cooking. Cooking. You may have sampled some one place or another, so, Pete, let's see if you're on the front burner. Well, it's about my friends, Mr. and Mrs. Fafufnik, and they're very happily married for years, except for one thing. He never liked her cooking, never seemed to like her cooking. And she read all these cookbooks, and she's making fancy dishes, never seemed to please him at all. She'd say, Abe, darling, says him. Did you enjoy the dinner? How was the sea lion steak? He says, so how should it be? It's a steak. <laughs> Next day, she'd say, Hey, uh, you like the chicken? 
He says, so why should I like it? It's a chicken. So this goes on and on and on, and finally she's in tears. She says, Abercrombie, I don't know what I've done to deserve this. She says, for years, ever since we was married, I've been cooking for you all the fancy schmancy dishes. I've been making you gorgeous things, lobster tetrachloride and veal scallopinkus and everything. You never seem to enjoy it. I can't understand it. What's the matter, Vibe? Why don't you like my cooking? He said, all right, Daphne. He says, you ask me, I'll tell you. He says, it's the gravy. For 30 years, you've been putting on a gravy. I can't stand it. She says, the gravy? So, Mr. Pickersnicker, what is wrong with my gravy? He says, well, I don't know what's wrong, but it ain't like my mother used to make. She says, well, why ain't it as good as your mother used to make? He says, because the gravy my mother used to make used to have a lot of nice little lumps in it. confusion as to just what happened. I think I'd better tell you, Pete, that got exactly nothing. So, instead of being in the gravy, you're in the soup with that. And so is Miss Lang, because having nothing, nothing ventured, nothing came. Let's see if you three fellas can top it. Harry? I know a short one. Jonah Goldstein's favorite story. A panhandler comes up to a house and a woman comes out. He says, I haven't eaten anything in six days. Will you give me something to eat? She says, do you like cold noodle soup? He says, I'll eat anything. She says, come tomorrow, it's still warm. <laughs> well, 1,000 should be enough to top uh, nothing, Harry, uh, which is exactly what we got to start with. So, uh, Senator, how about you in this round? Well, uh, a young bridegroom came home to his new bride one night at, at, after the office, and he kissed her and he said, what's the matter, your face smells funny. She said, I'm cooking out of a cookbook. The book says to rub an onion on your pan. <laughs> Give you fellas an inch and you take a mile. That's two one-thousands now on the Colgate Palmolive Laugh Meter, both slightly topping Miss Lang's zero-ho. And <laughs> so let's skip over to Joe Laurie Jr. Well, a woman left her husband for a night. She went to visit her mother or something. When she come back the next day, she says... How'd you make out, honey? How'd you make out about supper? I got along pretty good. I got along fine. He says, what'd you do? He says, well, I found a steak in the icebox, and then I uh, cooked some onions that I found down the cellar. You found onions down the cellar? He says, those weren't onions. Those are my tulip bulbs. <laughs> tulip bulbs or schmulip bulbs. It was 1,000, Joe, on the uh, Colgate Palmolive laugh meter that time. So we had a perfect round that time against absolutely nothing. So uh, here are the sad figures for Miss Lang. She's a recipient now of $10 with the compliments of Palmolive Shave Creams. And if she can stand it, a copy of the uh, joke as told by Peter Donald over the air. A recording, as a matter of fact. And also, to make her a little happier, a copy of that laugh-packed and brand-new cream-of-the-crop joke book written by our three wits. Well, time has wasted away, fellas, so I'll ask the audience to join Can You Top This, originated by Senator Ford, next week. Same gang, other jokes, some new, some old. Until then, we remain yours for bigger and better laughs. Senator Ford. Harry Hirschfield. Joe Laurie Jr. One foot in the gravy, Donald. <laughs> Ford Wilson. And Dan Donaldson saying goodnight for the Colgate Palmolive Beach Company, makers of Colgate Dental Cream to clean your breath while you clean your teeth, and Palmolive Shave Cream for smoother, 
for comfortable shape. <laughs> this is NBC, the national broadcasting company. What a great show. Can you top this? That was first broadcast back on November the 7th in 1949. Unfortunately, there's not a whole lot of episodes of that show in circulation, but we have enough that we'll probably be able to do a couple more in the months ahead. And now we're going to finish things up with a very long-running drama, Dr. Christian. This one featured uh, Gene Hersholt in the title role. And this was first broadcast July the 6th, 1946. And the name of this script is Two Loves Had Marriott. Dr. Christian's office, Judy Price speaking. Well, hello there, Willie. How's my favorite Boy Scout? Want me to settle an argument about sunburn? Okay, Willie, what's the problem? The Vaseline Program, the only show in radio where the audience writes the scripts. Tonight's play is one of those which received a special award of $500. It is called Two Loves Had Marion. The authors are Tom Taggart and Ashley Buck. Gene Hirschhold is starred as Dr. Christian with Janet Waldo playing Judy Price. Well, there's no argument to it, Willie. You're absolutely right. Sunburn is a burn. And you learned in your first aid course that doctors everywhere now accept petroleum jelly as an effective surface treatment for burns. Sure, Vaseline petroleum jelly is the world's leading brand. And you know something else? Vaseline petroleum jelly makes a painful sunburn feel better. <laughs> All right, here's why. Vaseline petroleum jelly cools that touchy parched skin. Helps supplement natural skin oils dried out by hot sun. Furthermore, Vaseline petroleum jelly forms a protective film that guards against infection when the skin blisters. Helps to promote healing. Oh, that's really the most important part, Willie. So take plenty of Vaseline petroleum jelly on your outing tomorrow, and if any of the kids get sunburned, you know. Oh, that's all right. Glad to help. And say, better make sure there's a supply of Vaseline petroleum jelly in the medicine cabinet at home. It's the approved first aid for minor household burns. <laughs> Have a nice holiday, Willie. Goodbye. Good afternoon. Uh, won't you sit down, Miss... Uh, uh, Douglas, Marion Douglas. I don't believe I've seen you in River's End before. No, I just arrived. My home's in New York. Doctor, I... Yes? Frankly, I don't know where to begin. It's all so involved and confusing. You're ill? Um, no, no, I'm not ill. <laughs> At least not ill the way your patients usually are. <laughs> You'll probably think I'm silly, but I've come all the way from New York just to see you. Well, I didn't know my fame had spread that far. <laughs> oh, that isn't it. That isn't why I've come. It's because of David. David? David Rodell. Does that name mean anything to you? Why, yes. We have a young man here in town, or rather did have, by that name. I believe he's still in the army. Or perhaps it was the Marines. Well, isn't he here now? Well, about that I'm not too sure. I'll ask Judy Price, my assistant. Oh, Judy! She'll know. Yes, Doctor? Do you remember a boy named David Rodell? David Rodell? Of course I do. We went to school together. But then you know him. You know what he's like. If anyone can help me, you can. 
You see, Dr. Christian, I met David Rodell a little over two years ago in New York. I was working at the downtown canteen for servicemen. It was a Saturday night, and there was dancing. And I saw this soldier leaning against a pillar. He was all alone. Hello, Corporal. Hello. Not dancing? Well, as a matter of fact, I don't know anybody. <laughs> Who does? That's what we're here for, to get acquainted. My name's Marion Douglas. I'm David Rodell. Will you dance? I'd love to. This your first trip to New York? Mm-hmm. Oh! <laughs> Pardon me. <laughs> that's all right. I've got two left feet. At least that's what my sergeant tells me. You're a good dancer. <laughs> I've had quite a bit of practice lately. You're here all the time? Three nights a week. You work? Volunteer, Red Cross. You don't get paid for that? No, uh -uh. Where are you from, Corporal? River's End. River's End? <laughs> Where on earth is that? Oh, it's a little town in the Middle West. New York, your home? Yes, I'm one of those rare people. I was born here. Ah, it's a wonderful place, all right. Oh, they would. Just when we were getting into the swing. I think this is intermission. Uh, would you like a drink and a sandwich? Yeah, but let's have them somewhere else. How about going I'm out to... I'm sorry, but we're not allowed. Rule number two, and I quote, no hostess will leave the club with a member of the armed forces. Yeah, I'm sorry, too. You see, this is my last furlough. When it's over, I report to a POE. POE? A port of embarkation. Oh. I'm shipping. Say, maybe we could leave here at different times and then meet outside. <laughs> Uh, that's been tried, too. Successfully? Very. <laughs> but I'm on duty until 11. I'll wait. Oh, good. It's only another two hours. Yeah, and that's nothing compared to the other waiting. Other waiting? Yes. All those years we didn't know each other. was how I met him, the way thousands of people meet. I know people laugh at love at first sight, but that's how it was with us. I think Miss Price will agree with me that David has definite charm. Over six feet tall, dark curly hair, a smile, well, it's sort of... <laughs> I know I sound oh, like wait a... wait a minute. You're not talking about David Rodell. But I am. Oh, then it's not the David Rodell we know. He's short and sandy-haired. I... I was afraid you'd say that. What? Perhaps you'll understand better when I've finished. I told you it was confusing. It's more than that. It's completely unbelievable and frightening. His furlough was for ten days. I'd met him on the third, so we really only had a week together. Did you ever try to crowd a, a whole lifetime into just a week? Well, we did. One day, we were sitting on a bench in the park, watching two butterflies. I don't know of anything that makes you feel as though spring is here as much as butterflies. You almost feel like them, light and gay. <laughs> They're the whole spirit of spring. I remember when I was a kid taking piano lessons. Le papillon, the, the butterfly. It went... Uh... I know. I had it, too. That's it. <laughs> Gee, I haven't thought of that in years. When I was a kid, I used to sit quietly and butterflies would light on my shoulder. Oh, they won't do that. They're too timid. No, they're not. I'll show you. Now, quiet. Oh, but David... Quiet, woman. The great Rodello butterfly charmer will now go into his act. They're coming this way. Quiet. They are. Quiet. 
that one did. David, why, you're the only man I ever knew who had a way with butterflies. Too bad they're the only ones. <laughs> I wouldn't say that. Look, Marion, I... Well, I guess there should be a build-up to this, but I don't know how to go about it. So I'll just keep it simple and say the same old words that millions before me have said. I love you very much, darling. Will you marry me? <laughs> I thought you'd never get around to asking me. Hey, that's the wrong thing to say. Your line is, this is so sudden. <laughs> we haven't time for lines these days. There's a war on, remember? Yeah, I remember. We'll have to be married today. Let's go. We can't be married today, David. There's a law. A law against getting married? <laughs> no, darling. But after you apply for the license, you must wait five days. Five days? Uh-huh. I'll be in the middle of the ocean in five days. I'll wait for you, darling. Wait until you come back. We can marry then. But... Well, maybe you're right. It would be better if you were free in case I... Well, my present vocation isn't exactly a safe one. It isn't that at all. And I don't want to be free. Not if it means never being married to you. We belong to each other, David. And that's the way I want it. Forever. We didn't get married. David left the following morning. We wrote each other regularly. Finally, I knew he was somewhere in the Pacific area. I used to dream of him every night. I know it sounds foolish, but... But in those dreams, he was like a defending angel with wings. Every letter he wrote was as beautiful and tender as that day in the park with the butterflies. Of course, I, I lived in constant fear. I subscribed to the River's End paper and watched its casualty list. That was how I learned about you, Doctor. When V.J. Day came, David had more than enough points to bring him home. We decided to live in New York, and I was lucky enough to find a small apartment. The day he was due to arrive, I, I moved to the new apartment and told Mother when he phoned to send him there. You can imagine how impatient I was waiting for the bell to ring. Dave. Darling, I... Oh. Marion. Who are you? Who am I? <laughs> Darling, don't tease me. Who are you? Why, I'm the bad, bad wolf come to eat up Little Red Riding Hood. Watch me wiggle my ears. What do you want? Marion, what's the matter? Have you a message for me from David? A message? Marion, I'm David. Can he... You're who? I'm David Rodell, the man you're going to marry. You're not David Rodell. I never saw you before in my life. Well, then, who am I? It's some trick, a joke. Marion, what's the matter? I'm David. Don't you know me? I couldn't have changed that much. No, no, you certainly couldn't. He was six feet one with dark, curly hair. But, Marion, I'm David Rodell. Get out of here. Whatever it is, it's not funny. Get out. Of course. But listen to me. Get out. You're not my David. You're an imposter. Get out. He tried to phone me the next day and convince me that he was David. He kept calling me, trying to see me. To get rid of him, I finally had to have him arrested. The judge ordered him to quit annoying me and let him off with a suspended sentence. After that morning in court, I, I never saw him again. Uh, one moment, Miss Douglas. Yes, Doctor? Did this strange or impostor, as you call him, give any evidence that he was David Rodell? 
Well, he had an honorable discharge certificate and the name on it was... was... Yes? David Rodell. And his home address? River's End. Hmm. There couldn't be more than one David Rodell in River's End, could there, Judy? Oh, of course not. And he's of medium height and blonde. No, no, he's tall and dark. I've come all this way. I've done so much to find him. There, there, now. Don't excite yourself. I'm sure we can help you. Nobody will help me. I even went to Washington, to the War Department. I was determined to find the David I had known. Our records show that David Rodell of River's End returned on the date you mentioned, Miss Douglas, and on the ship you mentioned, and since then has been honorably discharged. But that isn't the David Rodell I mean. It has been further confirmed that David Rodell saw active combat in the areas which you've mentioned. It can't be. The David I knew... I'm he... sorry, Miss Douglas. Every date you've given us leads to but one thing, that the man who claims to be David Rodell is David Rodell. He was the only person by that name in the infantry battalion to which you addressed your mail. Please listen to me. We have, Miss Douglas. And I regret there's nothing more we can do about it. Well, if the War Department investigated, I don't know what we... Tell me, Miss Douglas, you spoke of your mother. Did she meet both Davids? No, only the imposter. The week the real David was on his furlough, my mother wasn't in New York. Hmm. How about your friends? No, I was selfish. I suppose I kept David to myself. Then the only person who could distinguish between the two men is yourself? I'm, I'm afraid so. And since the second David has so clearly proved his identity, it's the first man, the man you fell in love with, Who's the imposter? Oh, no. You mean, the man she met at the canteen wasn't Dave Rodell, but, but the man who came back was. Is that right, Doctor? Yes. Well, the first one might have been an army deserter and, and took the name of Rodell by accident. Oh, of course, that's it. He, he might even have been in David's outfit. No, that doesn't hold water either. Why not? Because if there were two David Rodells, how did the second one come into the picture? Remember, he was the man who answered all of Marion's letters. He was the one who was overseas. And finally, the one who came back to marry her. Oh, wait a minute. You're getting me all mixed up. First David, second David. One tall and dark, one not so tall and blonde. It's a regular Gordian knot. It would take King Solomon to cut it open. You, you can't help me, Doctor? Oh, of course he can help you. You've come all this way, and David's such a nice guy. Which David? Well... Our David, of course. Well, phone him to come over here, will you, Judy? No, not the imposter. I, I don't want to see him again. Then why did you come to River's End? Because I hoped against hope that I'd find my David here. I know now I was wrong. You weren't wrong, Miss Douglas. Not wrong? No. Your David is here. Dr. Christian, this is Lieutenant Rodell. Oh, Lieutenant. Uh, uh, yes, come in. Sit down. Were you ever a corporal, Lieutenant? Yes, and a sergeant, too. I got my commission in the field. Iwo Jima, to be exact. Did you ever know a girl named Marion Duck? Mary? She's here? Oh, you did know her, then. No, I was engaged to marry her until... until she changed. I came back and she didn't recognize me. Have you changed? Well, not that much. 
I hadn't shrunk five inches and bleached my hair, if that's what you mean. She's been to see you? Yes, trying to find her, David. But I'm he. Doesn't she understand that? What's the matter with her, Doctor? Has she lost her mind? When you went overseas, she started to worry. You were Marion's hero. She gradually idolized you. Built you up in her mind into the personification of all heroes of romance. Well, tall, dark, handsome, brave, curly hair, a winning smile. Sort of idol worship, huh? Exactly. Well, you became a Sir Galahad in shining armor. And when you came back, well... Five feet eight, a toe head, 145 pounds. Must have been quite a shock. It was. It was such a shock that, well, you can see what he did. Now she won't even believe the evidence of the legal authorities. She sought help from the wrong sources. Almost any medical man would have recognized that... But what can we do to make her realize I'm the man she fell in love with? Wish I knew. Well, isn't there any cure for such cases? Well, sometimes there is. You see, to Marion, you're two men. Sort of a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. That's it. The man of goodness, whom she idolized, and the man of evil, who is trying to take his place. If he could only tie the two men together. Well, there must be something that would make you two men one. Sir Galahad with shining wings. Shining armor. What? You said Sir Galahad with shining wings. You meant with shining armor. Shining wings? That's it, Judy. That's it. But, Dr. Christian, I told you I didn't want to see him. Miss Douglas, I brought you here to this park under false pretenses, and I apologize, but believe me, it's only to help this young man. You see, he's under a strange delusion. A delusion that you're the girl he loves. If you'd only talk to him, perhaps he... I suppose I have been rather unkind. Well, just talk to him here in the park for a while. Very well, but I really... Here he comes now. Oh, uh, David! David! Oh, you stay with us. Uh, no, I think that... Uh, uh, good afternoon, David. Beautiful spring day, isn't it? It certainly is. Hello, Marion. Good afternoon. Well, I've got to be running along. I've got a patient having a baby. And you know how impatient babies are. They just won't wait. May I sit down? Why, certainly. Thanks. I'm, I'm afraid I owe you an apology, Mr. Ro Rodell, for treating you so badly in New York. Well, that's all right. I was rather upset. I can understand that. You're expecting one man and getting another. What was your David like, Marion? He was very tall. Dark, curly hair, and he had a smile. He was strong and kind and gentle, too. I remember one day in the park in New York. Yes? It seemed so long ago. Yes. Remember the butterflies? Yes, the butterflies. How, how did you know? I don't know of anything that makes you feel as though spring is here as much as butterflies. You almost feel like them, light and gay. You're the whole spirit of spring. I remember when I was a kid taking piano lessons. The butterfly, it went... Remember, Marion? David knew it, too. How did you know that? You're trying to fool when me. When I was a kid, I'd sit quietly and the butterflies would light on my shoulder. On David's, too. Let's be quiet and see what happens now. 
Well, there aren't any butterflies around. Maybe if we sit quietly. Oh, but I... Look, there's one now. Where? Over on that bush. There'll be another one. See? There it is. Yellow and black. Just like... What? Oh, nothing. Quiet. The great Rodello, butterfly charmer, will now go into his act. They're coming this way. Quiet. They did. David, why, you're the only man I ever knew who... who... David. You're David Rodell. David. You needn't sit there looking so smug. <laughs> Have the gold? Mm, they were married this morning, and you had nothing to do with it. It was the butterflies. Oh, that's right, Judy. It was the butterflies. Lovely creatures. Of course, you arranged for them to meet in the park, but you certainly couldn't predict there'd be butterflies or that they'd light on his shoulders. Of course not, Judy. That was just Mother Nature. She wanted to help Marion, too. What made you think butterflies would turn the trick? Judy, you're a woman. And what's the biggest moment in a woman's life? Mm, I suppose her wedding day. No, no, the moment the man she loves asks her to marry him. Marion Douglas' moment was all mixed up with butterflies. I just thought we'd recreate the moment. <laughs> lucky for you, there were butterflies. Very lucky, Judy. Uh, oh, uh, the next time you're going that way, take back Frankie Owen's minnows net, will you? Minnow net? Oh, what were you doing catching minnows? Who said anything about catching minnows? And, uh, Judy, uh, throw out the rest of the solution, too, will you? Hmm? What is it? Nothing, just a little sugar and water. Sugar and water? Why, you old fraud. <laughs> no wonder David Rodell had to send his suit to the cleaners. And the curtain comes down on the $500 Dr. Christian prize play, Two Loves Had Marion. And now, here is Gene Hersholt. Thank you very much. Next week, our play is called Spotlight on Grandma. And it's the work of Rebecca Bennett of Indianapolis, Indiana. We invite you all to join us again for the Vaseline program next Wednesday evening. And until then, I'll say good night. Art Gilmore speaking. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. Well, that was Dr. Christian, as first heard on July the 6th, 1946. And the name of that story was Two Loves Had Marion. Folks, and that is going to do it for old-time radio grab bag number 12. 
Hope you enjoyed our selections. Uh, like I said, I just kind of go through my files and, and look at things, and I don't listen to them for the most part. I don't preview them. I just think, oh, I think I remember that. That was interesting, and I throw it in. Or people have asked me if I would do more uh, like soap operas. I'll grab it, and I'll throw it in. So if there's something you want to hear, by all means, send me a note. You'll find my... Uh, well, my email address is bob at bestoldtimeradio.com. All right, we will be back tomorrow with the uh, archive show and back on Monday with a brand new uh, uh, edition of our show with an old-time radio comedy. On Tuesday, we'll have a drama, Wednesday a mystery, and Thursday a western. So glad to have you along. This is Bob Bro, and I'm so glad you met me. Mm-hmm.